Welcome to Big Time Dicks, the show where we take a closer look at the laws and lawmakers fucking up your life. I'm Joanna Rothkopf, Features Editor at Jezebel. And I'm Prachi Gupta, Senior Reporter at Jezebel. This week, to distract from growing evidence that Trump and his administration are Putin's hand puppets, Trump claimed, without evidence, that Obama had his phones tapped. Here's Press Secretary Sean Spicer responding to a reporter's question whether or not he believes that the wiretaps happened. I get that that's a cute question to ask. My job is to represent the president uh, and to talk about what he's doing and what he wants. And he has made very clear uh, what his um, what his goal is, what he would like to have happen. So now White House officials are just refusing to talk about those claims pending a, quote, investigation I love how they do that. I love how you can just throw something out into the world and be like, we can't comment on things until there has been an investigation. (laughs) Well, and also they didn't want to investigate the Russia claims, the the connections to Russia. But now Trump has been tweeting like, oh, my God, Chuck Schumer, what were you doing with Putin in 2003? And (laughs) and it's like the issue is not that you like spoke to a like a Russian official. It's that you have lied about it. Right. (laughs) I mean, also this wiretapping thing, just by the way that they do want to investigate to trace it back. Trump became aware of it because of a Breitbart article, even though Kellyanne Conway on a Sunday show later said that Trump has intelligence that nobody else has access to. But he said they said before that he heard about it from media reports. And the Breitbart article heard about it from, like, a conservative radio rant. This came out of nowhere. It just was— Is, is like, the point. Totally made up. <laughs> so this week was also International Women's Day and the A Day Without a Women's Strike, which we'll be talking about later. And we'll also be speaking with Ai Jen Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. To me, what Day Without a Woman was about was getting this country to really think for a second, to stop— And think for a second about how vital women's work is in this economy. But first, our week in weenies. So our weenies this week, I think mm, a couple of them have already been featured before. I know. We're going to start recycling weenies because they keep doing new stuff. It's just that, yeah, they keep doing new stuff. And it's it's just as egregious as the last thing they did. So— uh, Utah Congressman Jason Chaffetz. The Definitely guy, been a weenie before. He's been a weenie before. He's a guy who loves in- investigating Hillary Clinton's emails, but like really just doesn't want to investigate anything to do with Trump. So he has been going around talking about the new Republican health care plan that's supposed to be like the solution to all their issues with the Affordable Care Act under Obama. When, in fact, nobody likes it. it nobody likes Tru- it. Truly nobody likes it. Cons- <laughs> it. Including a lot of Republicans. Including Republicans. Yeah. Um, well, he was—so this plan is really going to—like, it's taking out the um, individual mandate, which a lot of people were frustrated by, but it's basically taxing— lowering taxes for the rich and then slashing benefits for poor people. Like, it's going to get—it's going to freeze Medicaid by 2020. So here's Utah Congressman Jason Chaffetz on CNN talking about the new health care plan. And you know what? Americans have choices, and they've got to make a choice. And so maybe rather than getting that new iPhone that they just love and they want to go spend hundreds of dollars on that, maybe they should invest it in their own health care. They've got to make those decisions themselves. Jason Chaffetz sounds like he's talking to his, like, asshole brat teen son. Exactly. (laughs) 
Yeah, and he's in fact talking to poor millions who of poor people who can't want to survive. Uh, and he later clarified those comments. <laughs> Maybe I didn't say it as smoothly as I possibly could, but people need to make a conscious choice. And I believe in self-reliance, and they're going to have to make those decisions. Like again, he does not think that poor people. Like it belies an idea that he thinks poor people are lazy or that they don't want to take care of themselves. Here's something that I think we need to start paying attention to because we're dealing with a lot of people who say major fuck-ups on this podcast or just outrageous things that they later will probably have to apologize for. I mean, many of them often don't, like if you're, say, a Donald Trump. But the people who do have to explain their comments, I think the apology is a big indicator about whether you're a weenie or just a guy who made a mistake. We need to study the art of the apology. <laughs> and I think, I think pay, not let these things slide because words from politicians soon turn into actions and policy. Like this isn't just some random idiot blasting poor people. This is an this, elected official. This is the Donald Trump take him seriously, not literally. <laughs> like what? what are you talking about? Right. Of course you take him literally. Our second weenie of the week is Ben Carson, my favorite weenie because he's so tired. He's like a weenie, but it's drooping. He's been tired this entire, the entire election. I know, and now he just got a new job. He's now the Housing and Urban Development Secretary. Congratulations to him. And he just gave a talk to his department. He said this quote. There were other immigrants who came here in the bottom of slave ships, worked even longer, even harder for less. So that's Ben Carson calling slaves immigrants looking for opportunity, which is such an amazing spin of slavery that I could never have anticipated. It's the most incredible euphemism I've ever heard for what was forced kidnapping and rape and taking people out of their homes against their will. And then indefinite imprisonment. And indefinite <laughs> imprisonment. I can't, I, I can't believe that I have to recount that. I'm sorry. I think, we, but. I think the listeners of this podcast are familiar with yeah, slavery. I, it's just that but, um, so many people you. seem to not be that <laughs> I find myself having to repeat some of these very basic facts. Okay, so then a couple days later, he also had to make the trademark weenie apology. And his, again, proved that he was a weenie through and through, incapable of self-critical thought. And he said on a serious XM radio show of his business partner, Armstrong Williams, he doubled down on these remarks. He said, I think people need to actually look up the word immigrant, whether you're voluntary or involuntary. If you come from outside to inside, you're an immigrant. Whether you're legal or illegal, you come from the outside to inside, you're an immigrant. Slaves came here as involuntary immigrants, but they still had the strength to hold on. Which is an insane So would he be okay with textbooks changing the term slave to involuntary immigrant? I mean, it seems like it. I don't who who can say? But also saying they still had the strength to hold on. Well, it's pretty insulting. Obscene. It's an added insult to everyone who was enslaved. And who died as right. slaves. There's no way to talk about this quote without there's sounding, no, like, ridiculous. There's no way. Um, All right. So our next weenie is another recurring weenie on this podcast. Attorney, we'll have more interesting weenies next week, hopefully, yeah. unless people keep fucking up. Right. Politicians— Stop. Stop making this Please stop. so easy for us. Yeah. Our next weenie is Attorney General Jeff Sessions. 
who uh, has recused himself from investigating Trump's ties with Russia because he basically lied under oath during his Senate confirmation hearing. And if there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians, um, and I'm unable to comment on it. Asked again by Senator Patrick Leahy in a in a written question in January, Leahy asked. Several of the president-elect's nominees of senior advisors have Russian ties. Have you been in contact with anyone connected to any part of the Russian government about the 2016 election, either before or after Election Day? Sessions said no. This is pretty, uh, like, unambiguous. There's not a lot of—there's not really room for nuance here. He definitely said no, and then he definitely did meet with Russian officials that he denied meeting with through the course of the campaign. Um, So now he's recused himself of presiding over any investigations with uh, Donald Trump's connections to Russia, but he's still the attorney general and the head of the Department of Justice. What I thought was the weeniest part of this whole story is what he said in his press conference, which when he recused himself, he said, My reply to the question of Senator Franken was honest, and correct as I understood it at the time. That's an amazing way to say I was just who has the balls to say this is me standing by my blatant lie. And then he also said because he met with the ambassador, he said most of these ambassadors are pretty gossipy. <laughs> so it's not like it came out because it is relevant. It's because these ambassadors love to gossip. And it's and it's this this justification if it were anybody else in that seat. Jeff Sessions would be calling for their removal. These guys are being very chill about almost blatantly colluding with Russia. (laughs) Okay, and now it's time for Weenie Cage Match, where we argue amongst ourselves about who the worst weenie of the week is. If you have an opinion, please tweet hashtag BigTimeDicks about who you think the biggest weenie of the week is. Prachi, who do you think? I think it's Jeff Sessions because he lied under oath and is now trying to squirm his way out of it and keep his job. And it's a pretty big thing to lie about. I agree. These two other people are really shitty and not smart and totally not empathetic or sympathetic. But Jeff Sessions, that guy's a real evil dude. Yeah. Just that layered on top, like the Russia stuff as like the toppings of the racist Jeff Sessions pizza. That's that's a bad pizza. <laughs> it's not a pizza I would want to eat. Not a pizza I would eat. Also, Jeff Sessions probably wouldn't call it pizza. He would call it like a freedom pie because <laughs> pizza is too foreign. I think that this food analogy has gone a little too far. No, I think it's accurate and good <laughs> and will hold up and stand the test of time. <laughs> And now for our dick of the week, which is things worth striking. <laughs> this 
this stick of the week is a little bit different from our past sticks of the week, which have been either legislative acts or specific politicians or maybe a gov- whole government body. This week is really general because we wanted to talk about the history of striking and the women's strike that and happened as, on Wednesday. And as I've said a million times, a dick can be anything. It can be every single thing worth striking. It could be every man in history. That's kind of what it is every week. <laughs> and But especially this week. It's usually white, bad white men. Bad white men. That's the— That's another thing worth striking, a bad white man. Right. So this week was a day without a woman. It was International Women's Day on Wednesday when women across the country wore red, took the day off of work for a strike and to protest— didn't purchase anything except for at a local women-owned business and generally engaged civilly. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think the, the – and the idea behind the strike this week was an act of solidarity together. I think it was really for women to come together and realize their own economic power, both for each other. Like I don't walk through life really thinking about those decisions as – decisions of power. Like I think about money as like, oh, I need this and I'm going to buy it. But I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about like what this purchase says or means. I think it was also to have men realize the economic power of women. Exactly. Economic and civil. Yeah. I think it was, I think it was both. um, To show that women are, women are a huge part of American, the American workforce. I would say one half or more. And actually it's less. I would say one half or slightly less. <laughs> but they are a majority of minimum wage workers. That's not funny. I'm not, I shouldn't be laughing during while Prachi, saying that. That's really weird of you to laugh. <laughs> so Prachi and I, as along with the rest of the Jezebel staff, we were all out in New York. We the Jezebel women striked for the day and allowed the men to run the website, which was an experiment. But we all went to different rallies and did different things and filed a bunch of stories on Thursday. Prachi, what was your experience like? Well, it was kind of weird. I mean, it was great. I am, I mean, I was so proud that we as a site are taking a stand to do that. But I was still like nervously reading Jezebel.com throughout the day to see what what kind of news was coming up on there. And I, it, it was strange because it was a day off to refrain from doing things, but I also felt like I wanted to do things to voice and to be politically active. But so I didn't really know how to like how best to conduct myself if I wasn't working and I wasn't like participating in normal life. So, right. It felt really weird. So to it was do really that. strange. And I mean it was nice to end up going to the rallies though. Today, today is for the trans women. hearing other women talk about their experiences. And as a reporter, that's where I feel most comfortable anyway. So I sort of went into reporting mode, even though we weren't really working. I just enjoy hearing about other women's experiences. One thing for me is, and I think you ha- you told me about this also, is that when I was walking around, I felt like I was going to see red everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. And I saw some we- women wearing it, and I was like, Tip of the hat to you, lady. 
but not nearly as much as I thought. There were women, I don't know, it seemed like business as usual in the very, very few neighborhoods I was in. I texted some of my friends from college, like, who would be, like, the demographic of people to be aware of the strike and stuff. Like, they read the things that we read. Right. And I texted the night before asking if they were striking, and they were like, oh, shit, that's tomorrow. (laughs) Or people were like, no, I can't for this reason. Yeah. Well, originally, I had wanted to do a piece on women who were had had to work through the strike and wanted to participate but couldn't. But so when I went to talk to women, I, I, mo- I went a lot out in like Chinatown and the Lower East Side and like a couple of other downtown neighborhoods. And the women who I spoke to were either largely unaware that the strike was happening or were just like, no, I can't take a day off. I have to work. Right. That was personally a little bit disappointing for me, even though I I'm under the impression that the strike was very successful and a lot of people were talking about it. But I did – I kind of expected it at least in New York, which is its own kind of culture and situation, to have the strike kind of be unavoidable. But it didn't seem like it was. Right, especially because at the Women's March – and this was organized by the same people who organized the Women's March. The Women's March was like the mar- largest march in history and it was such – like you couldn't go out in Washington, D.C. that day without seeing women in their bright pink pussy hats and their, like, yeah. signs and taking to the streets. So I was a little disappointed to not see that similar turnout for this day, at least in New York. I also think there was valid criticism here about the strike where a lot of women were talking about how it was a day for, like, you were, if you could take the day off for this, it's a, it was sort of a sign of privilege. And that's not really what striking historically has been about. Right. It is weird. At the protests that I went to, I went to the one, there was one at noon and one at four. And at the one at four, it did seem to be largely kind of young people, NYU students and creative types and retired people and not many people. And so, yeah. So what we want to talk about is how that is not at all the history of strikes. That's kind of a unique thing about right now, especially after the election where protesting has become so widespread when traditionally these are not the people who carry protests. That's not what a strike is. The idea of women striking is not new. It goes very, very far back. And one kind of funny example is back in ancient Greece when Aristophanes wrote his play Lysistrata. Women in that play, women begrudgingly give up sex in order to end the war. Um, The idea is just that, you know, when women organize, the world listens. And also that women control, literally control the human population. I have some Lysistrata thoughts about the present day. Here's my thought. I feel like a Lysistrata type thing would work for the Trump administration because they depend so much on women's approval and sex and garbage like that. However— I also am of the mind that Trump hasn't had sex since Barron was conceived, and so that it wouldn't matter anyway. (laughs) So we're going to go into a very brief and very loose history about women going on strike in America, and I think— you know, when we were researching this, there's 
there are way, way, way too many strikes and the labor movement is huge and the reasons that women strike are so complex and there are so many of them. So it's I think— not a, It's not fitted for a half-hour podcast. Right. This could be its own series, really. Right. Because, I mean, yeah, it should be. <laughs> so what we did instead was looked at a couple of strikes that we thought were really emblematic of the issues that women do strike for and— show the all the complexities involved with going on strike and the issues that they bring up specifically for women. So just the first one that I want to just like mention quickly, it was in Atlanta at the end of the 19th century. So it was in 1881 where over half of Atlanta's black residents and half of the black wage earners were women. And most of these people worked as laundresses. They worked doing laundry in households. And these obviously were completely unregulated, very, very low wage, very bad conditions. And so in July of 1881, 20 of these laundry workers formed a trade organization called the Washing Society. And they were looking for higher pay, autonomy over their work schedules, and more regulations, better safety. To do this, they coordinated with black ministers and held a mass meeting and then held a strike. And they also went door to door canvassing other laundry workers and also white laundry workers who were less than 2% of the laundry workers in the city. And so in only three weeks, the Washing Society grew from 20 members to 3,000 members, all of who participated in the strike. And many of them were arrested or they were fined. And then the Washing Society was threatened with a fee from the local government. First, they said for the Washing Society to exist, they had to pay this massive fee, and they fought back, and other workers went on strike, hotel workers went on strike, cooks went on strike, maids went on strikes, and then the city council decided not to give them the fee, and they succeeded. Wow. So let's leap, like, 25 years to the early 20th century, 1908-1909 in New York, when the garment industry was— also dominated by women, and also totally dangerous and a mess. And the conditions were really abysmal. Reading about them, I kind of couldn't believe it. In particular, shirtwaist factories and shirtwaists, if you don't know about these things, um, they, it's like a button-down blouse that women could wear to work. So this is like a big feminist garment, and a lot of stuff happened around this garment. So – Conditions at the shirtwaist factories in New York were very, very bad, as I said. they The wages were like $2 a day, and then the people working in the factory would get docked for their errors. So sometimes you would get docked even more than you got paid. Workdays were like 14 hours long, and you got one break. People peed on factory floors because they didn't get bathroom breaks. The factory room doors were locked. There was no ventilation. There were scraps of fabric everywhere. It seems truly like hell. And... So these factory workers held organizing meetings. There was one of these organizing meetings on March 8th, 1908, in which 15,000 women garment workers of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which was dominated largely by immigrants, marched through the Lower East Side and then rallied at Union Square to demand better conditions. This history intersects with the history of International Women's Day because in 1909, one year after that rally, the Socialist Party of America organized the first National Women's Day in New York to honor that strike. 
So that National Women's Day was on February 28th. But things hadn't really changed. So here's the real story that I want to tell. There's a lot of preamble. So one year later, things weren't good. People were still meeting. So on November 22nd in 1909, there was a meeting of New York garment factory workers to discuss conditions at the factories, which were still bad. And this woman named Clara Lemlick spoke. She was 23 and a Jewish-Ukrainian immigrant, and she spoke Yiddish. And she spoke at this meeting very famously. After all, these men were saying, we don't trust women to do a good strike. They aren't capable, blah, blah, blah. And she said, I'm a working girl, one of those who are on strike against intolerable conditions. I'm tired of listening to speakers who talk in general terms. What we are here for is to decide whether we shall strike or shall not strike. I offer a resolution that a general strike be declared now. And everyone cheered, and it was very exciting. And according to the BBC, thousands of workers took this oath in Yiddish to strike the following day. And the pledge was, if I turn traitor to the cause I now pledge, may this hand wither from the arm I now raise. So the next morning, Lemlick and tens of thousands of factory workers stood in the streets of New York to protest wa- their wages and working conditions. And it was later called the Uprising of the 20,000. And it lasted over two months. And it basically transformed the conditions of the, of the factory worker by giving them higher wages, shorter hours, more regulation. This progress was completely overshadowed a couple years later by the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire that killed 146 factory workers in 1911. And Lemlick, who was still in New York organizing unions, said that the high number of casualties from that fire was because of the absence of union standards at the factory, which would have prohibited locked doors and required fire escapes. So in 1910, an organization called the Socialist International met in Copenhagen, and they formally established a Women's Day to fight for women's rights and universal suffrage. It was voted for unanimously. And then the International Women's Day we know today was kind of solidified by the UN in 1977, and they declared that day would be March 8th. Thank you for that history on International Women's Day, Joanna. I mean, now we know, but it's all connected to women work, going to work to make clothing for women and having no standards. Right. And, I mean, this was universal in the early 1900s because there weren't regulations for men or for women. So basically there were a lot of strikes that we have not talked about happening all across America in the 1800s and in the 19, early 1900s. But one, another one worth mentioning is the Bread and Roses strike of 1912 in which Mill workers in the city of Lawrence, Massachusetts, went on strike to protest low wages. And within the first week of this strike, 14,000 people walked off the job. And eventually a total of 23,000 men, women, and children joined in this strike. Um, And I think what's so interesting about this strike is that Lawrence was known as an immigrant town. So, And the strike was really led and organized by women, specifically by immigrant women, The mill owners actually figured that because of ethnic barriers, because of, like, tribalism, the workers would never get together to unite and strike. And obviously they were proved wrong. Um, The organizers known as the Industrial Workers of the World were able to unite. Um, Basically, they united the different immigrant groups, and then in the end everyone came together. 
And it worked because the women in the communities united based on their womanhood, not on their ethnicity. Um, and then the strike got national attention. An outcry, uh, basically to, to generate money, the organizers were sending kids and, and their parents or like kids and mothers out to other to raise money and go to other neighborhoods. And in one of these visits, uh, a group of kids and their moms were leaving Lawrence and going, taking a train out to Philadelphia. And the police ended up, they were trying to stop them and it ended up beating them. That called an open investigation from Congress. And then later that year, Massachusetts ended up establishing the first minimum wage law. And then the Department of Labor was created uh, that year as well. So like, I don't think you can talk about the history of women striking without also talking about the conditions that women were working in and how those conditions varied based on your race. So, I mean, workplace conditions were really bad for everybody, as Joanna mentioned. And, and, and originally it was just men working at the mills. But basically what happened when women started coming to factories, lawmakers started trying to add protections, but just for women. So it was discrimination, but like, it was good for women, but it was like it should apply to everybody, not just women. But also the way in which it applied to women was like only certain women benefited from this. And Joanna, can you guess which women they were? I thought she was at white women. Yes. <laughs> this, <laughs> so, this podcast. There's a theme. Um, yeah. So, okay. So by n- 1917, women were barred from certain jobs or types of work in all but nine states. The grounds for these laws, like— was protecting America's future mothers. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and what's what's more messed up about them, or just as messed up, is just, like, how they really only serve to protect white women or women who weren't direct, directly competing with men. So, like, for example, in New York, women who worked nights and service jobs that men didn't want, like, and these jobs were actually, like, less safe— were mostly immigrant women who worked or women who worked as, like, domestic workers and domestic servants. Also, I think it's important to know that these organizing efforts and these strikes, by a lot of them led by white women, also excluded black and immigrant women. So there was that problem during the past century where women of color were excluded from a lot of major organizing movements. Susan B. Anthony, one of the leaders of of women's suffrage, once said, quote, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. Is that really racist or really feminist? It's, it's both. It's like both. It's racist feminism. Everyone was racist. It's like, yeah, it's it's racist feminism. It's just like That's like the white original feminism. white feminist yeah, quote. Basically. Uh, and I think there's and there's like one other so basically during this period there were not any kind of great protections for women and men. And then in the 1930s, under the New Deal, men finally got labor protections too. But women didn't still didn't have like equal rights in the workplace. And that didn't come until 1963 when the Commission on the Status of Women issued a report on all the workplace discrimination that women face. And that's when they stopped having workplace discrimination, right? No. I know, I'm joking. I'm just joking. I'm Unfortunately, being dry. we still see that. 
Uh, but it did lead to the passage of the Equal Pay Act, which finally made it illegal to pay men and women differently for the same job. And then in 1964, we finally had the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And then that led to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the office that looks into discrimination. And, and in 1969, they finally put an end to all those ridiculous labor laws that barred women from certain jobs under the guise of protecting them. So as we said, this this week's strike was there were kind of like two simultaneous cooperating strikes, a day without a woman and the international women's strike. Organizers for the women's strike wrote in an op-ed for The Guardian, as a first step, we propose to help build an international strike against male violence and in defense of reproductive rights on 8 March. In this, we join with feminist groups from around 30 countries who have called for such a strike. The idea is to mobilize women, including trans women, and all who support them in an international day of struggle, a day of striking, marching, blocking roads, bridges, and squares, abstaining from domestic care and sex work, boycotting, calling out misogynistic politicians and companies, striking in educational institutions. And they say that these actions are aimed at making visible the needs and aspirations people who lean in feminism ignored, women in the formal labor market, women working in the sphere of social reproduction care, and unemployed and precarious working women. So it's specifically in opposition to lean in feminism. But I think it's interesting that it was in opposition to that because one of the criticisms waged against the women's strike by other women and by other feminists, um, specifically like a lot of feminists of color, was that it was a very it seemed on the outside to be one of that women of privilege were taking a part of like it was almost a luxury that women could take this day off and women with low wages were not being engaged with the same way or being like the women who the women who actually stand to lose something like where were they in this yeah i completely understand that criticism if only women of privilege and secure salaried jobs are striking, that doesn't really even do that. It doesn't do nearly well, – like, they need to do it in solidarity with the other people, but I don't feel that it does. Yeah, and I think I think the other place where you, re- you really see this play out is in schools, for example. So several – like, several dozen schools shut down yesterday um, across the country because their teachers are largely women and they couldn't go to school. But then that also – you know, kind of screws over the women who are pri- the primary caretakers of children or, like, the single moms who, like, now have to figure out an alternate means to take care of their kids. You know, they need to go to work and they can't bring their kids with them. So, like, it is complicated. But, like, my personal think- thinking is that, like, there are ways that the strike could have been a little bit more inclusive. Like, if you look at the way other strikes have been organized, for example, you could have said, let's just try to get out of work like an hour earlier and everyone meets at like five, you know, or something like that. But I also think that a show of solidarity is important. Yeah. And it's better than nothing. And we need to be seeing more people thinking this way. And if you do have the privilege to do it, you should do it. (laughs) Don't just be like, this isn't for me. Right. And then advocate for women who don't have voices. Right. When you're doing it. Or don't have voices that are being listened to. That's what I meant. I <laughs> did not mean they literally don't have voices. Thanks, I Joanna. I just wanted to make sure. 
Now joining us is Ai-jen Poo, a labor activist and director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-director of Caring Across Generations. She's also the author of The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So just generally, you represent domestic workers. Can you start off explaining who classifies as a domestic worker and what challenges they specifically face? Domestic workers are the workforce of mostly women who go to our homes every day and provide care and support uh, for some of the most important elements of our lives. Our kids, our aging loved ones, our loved ones with disabilities, our homes, they make it possible, right, through their work and care for all of us to go to work every day knowing that our loved ones are in good hands. And it's incredibly important work, but it's often undervalued and invisible in our economy. In fact, it's some of the most vulnerable work in our entire workforce in that it's kind of hidden behind closed doors and you could go into any neighborhood or apartment building and not know which homes are also workplaces because there's no list anywhere. There's no place that these workplaces are registered. It's all kind of happening in the shadows. And it creates a lot of vulnerability. We actually often compare it to the Wild West because you never quite know what you're going to get. You might find an amazing employer who you stay with for years and years, and then there's also cases of human trafficking and modern-day slavery-type conditions, and then everything in between. It's it's just you, there are no standards, there's no guidelines, and so a lot of our work has been about promoting the dignity of this work, ensuring that this workforce has good protections and fair working conditions, and to really raise awareness about how important it is in our economy. And how did you get involved with domestic workers? How did you begin advocating for them? I just realized there how important it is for women who are leaving abusive relationships to be able to have economic opportunity and living wage jobs so that they can get back on their feet, start fresh, take care of their families as they try to rebuild their lives. And for a lot of immigrant women out there, there just aren't living wage jobs available. And the jobs that are available are basically like domestic work or restaurant work, a nail salon work, the kinds of work where you work incredibly hard and you just can't make ends meet. And I ended up thinking about how we make jobs that are good jobs with real pathways to economic opportunity available to every woman. So why are there still no uh, federal or state-level protections, on, for the most part, for domestic workers? Way, way back in the 1930s, when the New Deal was being negotiated, Southern members of Congress refused to support the labor law provisions that were being discussed in Congress if they included farm workers and domestic workers who were largely African-American at the time. And so in a concession to those members of Congress from the South, essentially Congress passed all of these cornerstone labor protections, excluding farm workers and domestic workers. And so we often talk about it in terms of this workforce having to live in the past 80 years in the shadow of slavery. And even though the workforce today is much more diverse, many more immigrant women 
it is still very much shaped by that history of racial exclusion in our labor law. So what were you, one of the tools that domestic workers must would have available to them, which we're discussing in this episode, is striking. What are your thoughts on this week's women's strike? We were really proud to be a part of this week's Day Without a Woman. To me, what Day Without a Woman was about was getting this country to really think for a second, to stop and think for a second about how vital women's work is in this economy and how much power there is there. I mean, women are almost half of the entire workforce. Women are 70% of the consumer base, and we're doing more than 70% of the family caregiving work in our economy. So women's experiences are not about a special interest group or some minority. It's actually defining of the health and well-being of our entire economy. And it points to the ways in which we need to be protecting the health and well-being of women in order for the whole thing to work. And so just to have a day where we're able to really feel our power, feel connected to each other, be in solidarity with one another, and start to imagine what it would be like if we really did wield our economic power as women to try to shape the future. One of the criticisms I heard about this strike was that it was accessible mainly to higher-class women, women with salaries and job stability, and it wasn't accessible to people who maybe were on a contract or not on a contract who had more informal labor arrangements. And that's traditionally not how strikes work. What are your thoughts on that? How? Why is this one? Is it different? Why is the perception that? I understand those criticisms, but I actually think that it was really important that we had a day that actually knit together the different ways that women power the economy, whether as workers or consumers, and for us to actually connect and be able to be visible by wearing red I actually think there were a lot of entry points and ways for people to participate that I think were really important. And throughout time, um, domestic workers and other low-wage workers have put it all on the line to make this economy better, not just for them and their families, but for everyone. So risk is something that's—it's not anything that's new for low-wage workers either. And, And so— You know, a lot of domestic workers participated yesterday. Some of them participated by wearing red. Some attended rallies. Some missed work. Some just refrained from purchasing things. But it was a a way that they actually really appreciated being a part of this massive show of solidarity on the part of women workers throughout the economy. So I actually had a lot of difficulty uh, finding women who were working yesterday who were willing to talk to me about about it. And uh, some women didn't know about the strike and some women basically said that they wouldn't be able to take a day off. And can you walk us through how you convince somebody who doesn't have protection under a union, who makes low wages, who is is exploited and seen as expendable by their employer, whether that's, you know, somebody who's working in somebody else's home or a restaurant worker? Um, how do you convince them that striking will help them and and how does it eventually because i can see many situations where somebody could just lose their job and then what have they gained at the end of that so we we actually did not try to convince people to take risks that they weren't prepared to take 
And being a part of an organization like ours, even if they did decide to take that risk, being a part of an organization means that you're connected to resources should anything happen that could help you and support you. So, And we've really done it through the years. I mean, in fighting for the Domestic Worker Bills of Rights, We've never called for a strike, but we have asked for people to take days off from work, to travel to um, state capitals, to tell their stories, to lobby, to march, and people lose days' pay. And when they ask for the day off, they don't have job security, so they might risk their employers getting upset and firing them, but it is their choice, and um, and it's something that they want to do to be a part of making change for themselves, for their families, and for their workforce. So it's the way that we've been able to achieve the progress that we have is through that kind of sacrifice that workers have made. And I think for a lot of them, they take a lot of pride in those choices. So why have immigrant women and women of color always been at the forefront of resistance movements like this? Well, I think I I often refer to women of color and immigrant women as as first responders, in many ways, when we think about the kind of um, roles that we have in society and in the economy, we're often carrying a lot of the family care responsibilities, looking out for our families and our communities, and as well as working in the workforce. So the experiences of women are really on the front lines of so much change that's happening in our economy and in our society and trying to figure out how to respond for their families. And so they'll often be the ones who are responding first on the part of communities. And the other thing about women and women of color in particular is that Their experiences are really at the intersection of so much change. And they're not experiencing kind of the the challenges with or the threats to their health care and immigration threats and economic threats as separate issues, right? It's all happening at once. The experience is is really about whole person politics because people are not living single-issue lives, as Audre Lorde says, but actually experiencing all these things at once. And that is particularly true for women of color. It's like separate. you can't really separate out the impact of criminalization or racial violence in the community from their experience of um, having access to good education and, and safe housing, right? All of these things are being experienced in the community and by women of color at once. And so they're often trying to figure out and navigate how to respond and how to address um, different forms of injustice. And they're often first to try to call it or to name it and to try to organize a response. So I think that it's part of uh, living on the front lines of all of this change and the kind of responsibility that we have to our families, to our community that often situates us in a position to really lead in the solutions and in the responses. So what are some of the policies that the Alliance and domestic workers need the most and that you're fighting for? On both ends of the generational spectrum, there's this huge explosion in the need for care for child care and for elder care. We're on a trajectory to actually be the largest single occupation in the entire workforce by the year 2030. So care jobs, domestic work jobs, are actually the jobs of the future in many, many ways. 
understanding that a big part of this workforce is immigrant, so we need to create a path to citizenship for the immigrant workforce, and we need to support the ability of working families to afford care. One of the problems is it's tough to raise wages when nobody can really afford care. (laughs) And so one of the things we're fighting for is this big vision um, for what we call universal family care, the idea that there should be a fund that's available for working families to help them pay for child care, elder care, and paid family leave. And so those are the three policy agenda pieces for us improving these jobs, making these jobs good jobs with benefits, helping families afford care through universal family care, and the third piece is a path to citizenship for the immigrant workforce. Now, unfortunately, we're in a space where this administration is trying to take us backwards on all of these issues as opposed to forward into the future in a way that actually creates more support and abundance for all of us. And so that's why we are in in motion along with all these other women to say we want progress and we're not going backwards. Well, Ajahn, thank you so much for being here. It was great to hear from you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And now for How to Handle the Dicks, our segment where we tell you how we're handling the dicks. Prachi, how are you handling the dicks? I feel like I'm not really. I think the I think I got like I've kind of lost my game a little bit this week. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Well, the women's strike has been helped me reorient a little bit. Uh-huh. But I had as anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, I had an extremely bad date on Friday night. It's kind of comically bad. It's, like, I really don't, bu- I mean, it's not comic for you, but like. Well, it's, it actually sort of is. I'm like, what the? F-? <laughs> it's like, who? He sounds like a troll, like a real troll. He was, a, I went out with a real life troll and I didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, right. It happened to you. Um, Yeah. And I'm still, so for anyone who has not, does not follow me yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, give abbreviated I did my, version and then see the extended version on Prachi Twitter. Yeah. So I had a date with a, a second date with a person who seemed very nice and considerate and whatnot. But then in the middle of a what was a fairly light conversation, he said, I'm going to tell you something that is potentially offensive. And I was like, don't. Let's not. Let's not. Why <laughs> if you think it's going to be offensive, it okay. probably is. And I don't need to hear it. And then he blurts out that he thinks black people are lazy. And his defense of this was that slavery lasted for as long as it did because black people were not motivated enough to get out of it. Yeah, this is like such troll arguing. Like, what are you supposed to say to that? Like, it, it was this, it doesn't even merit a response. Yeah, it's, it's just like you so can't respond. Absurd and offensive. So basically it ended up with me telling this person that they are racist and I walked out and I was so upset by it, but also just just in disbelief. I just needed a witness because I couldn't believe that this actually happened. So I went on my first ever Twitter rant. I've never done a Twitter rant before. I've never been that person, but I turned into that person. And you know what? It was great. And it was a great way to handle the dick in my life. You're handling the dicks as a Twitter rant. I don't normally advise that, though. No, don't advise it. But I just needed it this week. Yeah, it's like, do what you say, not what you do, although what you did was very successful and cathartic. It was. 
For me, I have found that Twitter as a platform is terrible now because it's, I mean, sometimes there's some jokes. Sometimes you get some good news. Sometimes there's like a good quip. But mostly it's people responding to Donald Trump news and politics news or sharing a depressing fact or taking a picture of their dog that just died. Or going on Twitter rants or going about on Twitter. racists. Oh, wow. I didn't even. <laughs> Joanna just low-key. <laughs> like subtweeted you to your face. into my face, yeah. <laughs> I honestly didn't even think about this. I was going to say before Brett, you said our story. No, I, hey, I 100% agree with you, so. <laughs> but it's just very upsetting, and I look at it all day. We look at it all day at work. So when I go home, I found that I need to stop using Twitter and I and to replace it instead of reading a book or some shit. I've started looking at Instagram. So now I use Instagram way more. And the way I'm using Instagram is by following a lot of fitness fitness women. And I'm finding it very fun. Like really hardcore like training accounts and really muscular people. Wow. And I just watch them doing exercises and like drink their matcha lattes. Does that really helps you? That would just depress me even further. Oh, it further. relaxes me. I love it so much. I love looking at their bodies and what they're doing. You sound extremely creepy right now, Joanna. I'm not <laughs> creepy. That's what they're for. They show up. They do Instagram stories of themselves doing exercises so you can be like, damn, that looks hard and you look good doing it. That's <laughs> Literally the point. It is the point. That's true. <laughs> it goes along with my whole increased dedication to fitness in case of the apocalypse. Sorry to subtweet you. Thank you so much, iGen Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and thank you for listening to Big Time Dicks. Please rate and review us on iTunes so other people can find the podcast. This show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Manana Mofidi is our executive director of audio. We featured music by Stuart Wood and Aaron Leader, and the episode was mixed by Brad Fisher. Got a big time dick you want to tell us about? Send a voice note or email to bigtimedicks at jezebel.com or tweet at Jezebel using the hashtag BigTimeDicks. We'll see you next Friday, and who knows what the world will look like then.